Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And basically, when people say the nature is on, they're thinking more of Malcolm and not Elijah Muhammad. And people in the, in the nation are becoming jealous against Malcolm, especially people who are members of Elijah Muhammad's family. And they're feeling that Malcolm may want to try and take over the nation and step into their hierarchy. And that becomes problematic. But also, how much of this is, is also infiltrated by the FBI? who has already, we already have the document that they were surveilling them. They were surveilling Elijah Palmer, all of his households. They were following Malcolm during this time when he's organizing the Hartford Mosque. They're, they're following him. Whenever he holds a meeting, they're walking up to people who go to the meetings and asking what, the, what was being said in the meetings. This is all going on at the same time and it's creating this environment of paranoia and distrust. You don't know who to trust while he's still building up a nation. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel. And this week, you're in for a very special treat. So a few months ago, episode 21 to be precise, I ran a little experiment where I brought onto the podcast a Yale professor and author, Dr. David Blight, to talk to us about the life of Frederick Douglass, which was based on his Pulitzer Prize winning biography called Prophet of Freedom. And I've been eagerly anticipating the next opportunity to share the life story of a historical figure as fascinating as Douglass. Well, recently, I got to have a conversation with Tamara Payne, who, along with her father, Les Payne, were co-authors of a book called The Dead Are Arising, which is a National Book Award-winning account of the life of Malcolm X, who is one of my personal heroes and who is, I believe, one of the most fascinating and misunderstood social justice warriors in modern history. The Dead Are Arising was listed by the New York Times and Time Magazine as one of the best nonfiction books of 2020. It's also received favorable reviews in just about every other major journal and media outlet for its extensively researched page-turning prose, which details aspects of Malcolm X's life that have never been written about so closely. So Malcolm's birth name, as some of you know, was Malcolm Little. And there are lots of stories that Tamara shares about the Little family's strong Garveyite background and how Marcus Garvey even visited their home. They wrote extensively about Malcolm's childhood and his family life as told to the pains firsthand by his brothers and sisters and other relatives. We learned the truth about how Malcolm's father actually died, which is different from the story that Malcolm told in his autobiography. And you might remember the Shorty character from the autobiography. Well, turns out Shorty was a composite of several of Malcolm's friends and running buddies, including one of his brothers. We also talk about the circumstances in which Malcolm's mother, Lorraine Little, was committed to a mental institution and how Malcolm's older brother, Wilfred, became one of his best friends and closest confidants near the end of his life. 
Les Payne had several interviews with Wilfred. They also found and interviewed people who Malcolm went to school with and ran the streets with and even served time with as he underwent his transformation. We knew that Malcolm was an avid reader, but turns out he was even a fan of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a book that played a key role in helping Malcolm get released on parole, which is when he then became a minister for the Nation of Islam. The Paines also wrote about the secret meetings that Malcolm X had with the KKK, as well as the details of his gruesome assassination and who the real assassins were. So in this very fascinating episode, we're going to unpack a lot of aspects about the life of Malcolm X that you've probably never heard about, even if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I think that you too are going to have a greater appreciation for all that Malcolm X overcame in his short life, as well as the direction that he was heading in near the end of his life. As with the Frederick Douglass episode, we're going to start the conversation by talking about the author's backstory, which is equally as interesting. The Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist and weekly Newsday columnist Les Payne undertook this project after having a chance encounter with Malcolm's brother Filbert in 1990. And then the book ended up being 28 years in the making. But then Les Payne unexpectedly passed away in 2018, which led his principal researcher, who happened to be his daughter Tamara Payne, take the reins and complete the project two years later in 2020. So during those three decades, Mr. Payne had been grooming his daughter to become an expert investigative journalist and showing her how to interview sources properly. So she was more than capable and prepared to take over the project when he passed. And it's not surprising that their book went on to win the prestigious National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2020. So I'm honored that I got to speak with Tamara Payne about this super important project, especially now after having just observed the 56th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X a couple of weeks ago. And so without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with author Tamara Payne and less pain will be there in spirit. Tamara, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's an honor to be able to talk with you about the life of Malcolm X and this amazing book that you and your father wrote, The Dead Are Rising. And I want to start off by talking about the genesis of the idea. Now, I know your dad, Mr. Payne, is from Alabama. He's from Tuscaloosa. And yes. then he he and his family migrated to Hartford, where he actually got an opportunity to hear Malcolm X speak at the University of Connecticut. I think I believe Malcolm no. was about 30, 37 years old at the time. Malcolm spoke at Bushnell Memorial in 1963. My father was attending universities of uh, Connecticut stores. And he and his roommate went to go see Malcolm because they just said, hey, let's, let's go hear what he has to say. And his roommate was Jewish, so it wasn't a, another Black guy. It was a Jewish guy. Well, it's interesting because he described that night as a night that he stopped being a Negro. What do you mean by yeah. that? Well, Negro being that this is the term that Black people are referring to themselves. They, ex- they accepted this term Negro at that time. Mm-hmm. To call each other Black was derogatory. You know, my father would often joke, if I call my brother Black, he would beat me up. And if I called him African, he'd be chasing me even now. So <laughs> so these are considered in 1960 derogatory terms for, towards Black people. And Malcolm was using Black. 
alternating in how he would describe Black people in his in his lectures. You know, he would alternate, say, so-called Negroes, Negroes, and then he would say Black. And it was always interesting. After hearing my dad talk about seeing him and write, reading that essay and then listening to Malcolm Dunn, you kind of realize, like, Malcolm's really playing with people. And, and if you think about it, like, how language is kind of how you get used to your ear tuning into how you hear terms. What Malcolm does, he plays around with this and he keeps alternating and he gets this response from the audience, including from my father. He says, dad said that when he would hear black, my father would be offended, you know, and everybody would move in their chairs and have certain responses and they hear so-called Negro and they'd be calm. And (laughs) Malcolm said, I see you like the term Negro and not black, but what is Negro, but black and Spanish. So what you're saying is I can call you black and Spanish but not in the language you speak. And for dad, that was so clear. (laughs) It was like lightning, you know, struck in his head and just like, wait a minute. Wow. That was just so clear and concise. And he said like, it, it was enlightenment for him. And then it made him think, you know, like he didn't think of himself as I willfully see myself as inferior. I mean, we talk about in this book, when we talk about how, we have to look at the the sense of inferiority Black people have inherited through our history here in this country. It is not because they really see themselves as lower, but it is also a survival tactic, you know, just to get through the day, you know, I mean, to avoid lynchings and stuff. Even when you move up north and escape the Jim Crow South, you have, there are things that you have to do. And, and even, and that in this moment, it's like all this kind of fell away in that moment for him to see, like, on the one hand, no white person has never seen themselves on an equal par with me as a black person just when they see me. And black people, we, we'll say we can do anything, but yet what do, what are we doing? You know, how do we see ourselves? This is a question I think that's, you know, it transpired, it, even in our generation, that this is something that we've seen. Um, even when we get to see ourselves on television, what were those images, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s? You know, and then the 90s, it proliferates into these great images. But before then, it was always like these different images. And those images are, we start internalizing, this is what how we are. This is how we speak. And then we should be proud of them. We should be. But we're also more than that, too. I want to fast forward a little bit. So when your dad becomes a family man, he's still reading the autobiography of Malcolm X every five years or so. And he's playing these speeches on the weekends. And I'm just curious, what was the setting like when you were, when were you guys all sitting in a living room listening to these speeches? Were you in the car? Like how, how did that even, how did that happen? I mean, he had the speeches on reel to reel tapes and later on in cassettes, but on the reel to reel tapes, he would play it in the living room. We would be in the kitchen, usually eating breakfast around the table and listen to the speeches. It was just the background, you know, but listening, it was loud you know, and this is, again, how we can inherently change our perspectives, too, right? So I'm coming up at a time listening to Malcolm X talking about the ballot. Well, I don't understand what a ballot is <laughs> at six years old. I don't know what a ballot is. But his description and his critique, his analysis, it gets in there because it's the language that I hear. I get used to hearing. So when I hear it outside, it's like, hey, I, I, I've heard that before. Or why aren't people saying this more often? Why don't I hear this anymore? And that was really the question I was asking. But, you know, I I do want to just say a little bit about my dad, because, you know, dad as a journalist, 
you know, he was huge, hugely impacted by Malcolm X. And yes, he was reading him and, and it influenced in how he would look at getting into journalism, which is about getting information to the people so they can make informed decisions, but also in helping Black people to change their own situations and learning about what the forces were doing around them, the government, the governing forces in particular. And so and encouraging Black people to have that information at hand. Now, if they chose not to look at that information, re, you know, use the information, you can't control that, but at least have the information there for them to reach it. And that's kind of really what he was working on doing. And people would read him. And he, he worked hard to really work at not just, I mean, he wanted it so that people would read him. So he worked really hard at read at writing, you know, and he wanted to look at what other journalists, you know, were writing about it. And particularly at that time it was print journalism. So that was really huge for him to understand how do you communicate these ideas? And he looked at different writers and he looked at all the writers. He read voraciously, he read everybody. And he read ideals and all kinds of ideas and philosophies. But, you know, one person he would always go back to, and I would say probably two people that, you know, hugely impacted his writing were H.L. Mencken and Mark Twain. And Mencken, because he was an iconoclast, he was very hard hitting and he was about breaking what the status quo images were. Even though he was a racist, yes, this is true. But if you're going to not read racist, you're not going to read. You're not going to read Hawthorne. You're not going to read, you know, you're not going to read a lot of people. And then Mark Twain, who's just, oddly enough, became what? What we consider the first American voice, really, mm-hmm. that was distinctly American, writing about our history and, and not, not mimicking the English writers like Hawthorne and so on. And he really was developing an American voice in his canon and his writing. And Dad and I used to talk about this a lot. And, you know, and I really miss those conversations, but <laughs> just just about writing, you know, and, and what we what we see from different writers. And of course, they, you know, they're the black writers, you know, that we were he read, you know, he read Richard Wright, he read Lexington Hughes, he read them all. But, you know, even when I was showing an interest in writing, he would say he would start me off with uh, Mark Twain and I hated Huckleberry Finn. And I kept saying, oh, I'm not into Huckleberry Finn. But then I started reading Mark Twain's other stuff, his essays. And his other writings outside of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, I thought were great. And I encourage a lot of people to read outside of his stuff, out, those outside readings, writings. Mm. You have siblings. Were you the only one who he was doing this with? Or was he doing this with all of you all? We, like, we would read books together. I have two brothers, younger brothers. And we would read together different books. We read Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. We read Black Boy, Native Son together also. Mm. You know, and others, we read Shakespeare together. And it was always really interesting. And this was outside of class. I mean, this was outside of school. You know, and it was just really getting into understanding the mechanics of writing with a writer. And outside of the home, he was helping to create the National Association of Black Journalists. He was working on Pulitzer Prize material. He had his column. Is that something that he would bring into the house a lot and maybe discuss with you as sort of his apprentice? We all listened to his ideas on his columns, you know, <laughs> that was like mealtime conversations. You know, we were like, okay, we've had this conversation. So, okay, we'll have to see what the final outcome of this is going to be on Sunday. <laughs> A lot of time. <laughs> so you remember, you remember him, actually his work process and everything. He would start off talking about it, brainstorming with you all. 
And then finally, you would you be excited on Sunday to actually see what the final oh, please. product Sometimes was? Sometimes we got involved and we would say, hey, have you heard about this story? And we'd talk about what this story, why it was interesting or why it was important. And he didn't necessarily pick up all of our ideas, but some of them, you know, he did write about that, you know, I had, pick, you know, picked his brain about and he had, pick, so I remember one column he wrote, he was started off because I had called him up to tell him that uh, Spike Lee was on Arsenio Hall. <laughs> he was just talking about that interview, you know, <laughs> and, we were, and we talked about what that interview was like. But then you went to China. Yeah. I taught English. I graduated from Hobart William Smith Colleges and then I went off to China. I actually worked with Channel 13, McNeil Lara for, for a few months. And then Tiananmen Square happened and I got really excited. <laughs> and I also had an invitation to go, but I, I was in the process and I didn't hear anything. Then all of a sudden I heard all these teachers had canceled at the last minute because of this Tiananmen Square. And I was like, okay, I'll go. And it was really interesting to be there at that time. So I went in after Tiananmen Square. The, the and, fall semester afterwards. And in the meantime, had he had the conversation with Dr. Evans yet about? Not, he had that while I was in China. I stayed there for two years. When I came back, he had had, he had met the brothers and interviewed them. And I had come back to visit and he was just processing the interviews. And it was just so fascinating what he had learned. And again, as I said, you know, my father's not a scholar, he's not a historian. And these are his own words too. He's a journalist to his core. He's always going to look for a story and everybody's a source. So, you know, having a friend who's a surgeon in Detroit, they know interesting people. And one of them happens to be one of Malcolm's brothers. And that's how that kind of started. And, and he sat down with uh, one of them and, and had the interview. And it was really interesting what he got from that. And then he came back to New York and he spoke with his colleague, Gil Noble. And Gil Noble, also familiar with the fam- little family, said, which brother did you speak to? He uh, suggests that he speak to Wilfred. Now, my father spoken with Philbert, who's only a couple years older than Malcolm. And Wilfred, who is the eldest, who was older than Malcolm by six years. And he was also Malcolm's confidant and best friend. And so the perspective you get from those two brothers, you know, is really interesting. And especially at that time, this is in 1990, when he has those interviews, you haven't really heard that before. Not this kind of detail. Malcolm mentions his family, but he does, you don't hear the details. And the other thing, it's important to understand that, you know, biography and, and an autobiography. Malcolm's telling you through Alex Haley's filters, too, the story he wants you to know about himself. And biography is really kind of what other people say about you. First of all, I'm having a small world moment because Dr. Evans, he was also the catalyst for David Blight accessing that repository of articles and information on Frederick Douglass. And he's he's also an art collector and he's a surgeon. And so it's interesting that he's, it's like all roads to black history seem to go through Dr. (laughs) In some form or fashion. And then Gil Nobles, you know, he had done a documentary on Malcolm X already. He had done a full length interview on with, uh, with Wilford. So, I'm curious why he didn't put any of this information out there. I don't know how close they were or how their relationship was, but was he telling your dad stuff about Wilfred that the world 
didn't know or that he didn't know yet? Was he telling him to go and, and ask these questions or what was that relationship well, like? Well, the work that Gil Noble was focusing on was on the assassination. Okay. So he was really focusing on towards the end of Malcolm's life. And, you know, Wilfred is giving his perspective on it at that time. And then, but a lot of people didn't even know, hadn't even seen those interviews. This was learning about their childhood. This was learning right. about growing up in Lansing. This is going in Omaha. This is what was Malcolm like when he was 12. I mean, Gil Noble, you know, his interviews did not. They were focusing on the assassination, which was huge. Got it. I mean, because yeah. he's also doing this 70s and 80s. I mean, people want to know what happened, how Malcolm was killed. What was that about? And getting that information about, and, you know, and he did great work as far as what he was able to get access to. I mean, and, and that's the thing. As journalists, you focus on what your story is. Now, and I also say it's also a matter of time, too, that people are also more willing to talk about Malcolm, even. Gil Noble and, and Wilfred, you know, they knew each other and they had developed a relationship, too. But, you know, and I can't speak to all the details of how that, you know, relationship went through. But the thing is, is that I, what I found when we started on our book, project that it became a lot easier to find people. Whereas before mm. what I was hearing was you'll never find James Shabazz, but we managed to find him. You'll never get Luke Mott. We found Luke Mott. I would say the space had cleared, the environment had cleared and people kind of coming back and, and they were starting to talk more. And there mm. was an interest because during the nineties, of course, there's everybody's talking about Malcolm and everybody's listening to his speeches and the movie Spike Lee's movie has been out. The book was a 30-year-in-the-making project, 28 years with your dad, and then you finished up these last couple of years. I've done a few books. <laughs> I've negotiated a few contracts. I can't even imagine saying this is going to be a 30-year project. Was it like an open-ended book deal, or how did that work? No. and <laughs> None of us expected it to take this long. You guys have made distinctions before about the historian slash scholars versus the investigative journalism. Is that a part of the kind of, this is going to take as long as it takes for us to interview all these people, because this is how we're approaching this subject. When you pick a story like this, when you're picking this light and you would think that a lot of people probably would think that, Oh, this man's been dead, you know, at that point, 25, 27 years that, you know, you just find these people and they talk and, and you can put it together. But the vastness of this, what he did was incredible. I mean, he had to travel. That one talked to people in Africa. It just, it took time. And dad also did not want to just, this wasn't a report, just the facts person story. Mm -hmm. This was a story of not just about who Malcolm was, the person, because he's always presented to us fully formed and angry. But this is to show who he was as a person, that he had a family, that there is lineage here, and that this family was supportive of him, but also the world he was born into. And as I know, when we get into the book, we'll show you the details of the world he was born into. A lot of times when I look at a lot of these biographies, they don't talk about what was going on historically. And this is, you know, a lot of people probably say, oh, it's Black history. This is American history. The Great Depression, the Great Migration affected everybody didn't just affect Black Americans. This is American history, and it changed mm. American history. It changed, you know, what people saw and did and what their views of people who didn't look like them, who they started seeing, they're deeming to be their enemies, I mean, and, and their friends. 
you know, it changed because of these things that were happening, people's movements around, not just of Black Americans, but people who were coming in from the other countries too. But this mm. is all a part of America. And just looking at all of this and putting in a context and putting all this in a context, as well as understanding what was Malcolm trying to do? When we look at Malcolm and, and his work of, you know, achieving, wanting this country to work for everybody, especially Black Americans, right? And he does this through the upbringing of his parents, you know, who are followers of Marcus Garvey. But also, when you talk to people, it's like, these are the kinds of questions. What was the circumstance that made you, that not only brought you in contact with Malcolm, but how were you even in that city, right? For example, John Davis Jr., who was Malcolm's running mate when he was 12, 12 years old in Lansing. He's from Mississippi. His, you know, he had, he had upset some white guy and this guy wanted to have an example made of him and the mob was looking for him and his family smuggled him out, sent him up north. And this is a story you hear over and over and over again. This is our history. And it's painful. And to ignore it, we can't ignore it anymore. It's painful. We have to deal with that. We have to come to terms with that. And we have to make people accountable. Because what we were talking about is white supremacy. What are some of the tricks of the trade that you learned from your dad when you approached the source about getting to the the crux of their contribution to the, to Malcolm's story. How to connect. You have, it's important to build a connection with your source and understanding that look and, and making them understand their story is important Mm. for others to understand that their story teaches lessons. And it does. If you just say, I just need to know the story because I have this deadline to meet, you know, (laughs) you're not going to get me to answer any questions. And I've had reporters do that to me. I was like, okay. And they're like, well, you know, if you give me your name, I'm not giving you my name. <laughs> I've done that. But you have to make a connection. And I think that good reporters make connections with their sources. Because the other thing is, not only just in making those connections, they're going to keep coming back. It's a relationship. You're going to keep coming back to this source. You don't just interview a person one time and get this way and that's it. You don't have to come back. You don't have to verify. I mean, if it's a real dangerous situation, you're going to want to get as much of the information as you can, but then you're going to have to verify it. And at some point you're going to have to come back and say, these things track, these other things don't track. But yet you can only do that when you really make a connection. And then how do you make connections? And also getting leads to other people, you know, getting names of other people too. Don't, the interview shouldn't stop with that person. It's anybody else I can talk to. That's always important too. But making connection was always, was the first. And watching dad prepare for these interviews was just amazing. And then becoming part of that process, like this is information that's really important because you kind of have to know what information it is that you're trying to get out of the person too, you know, especially if it's going to be a, a tricky, a tricky person. Yeah. And you also talked about how impressed you were with his ability to compartmentalize because on one hand, he's working on his column and then he's like doing some other stuff. And then he's coming back to the book and the interviews and the outline and you know, keeping it all going at the same time, which sounds like uh, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> it is impressive years. when you think of him managing reporters and sending to these sometimes very dangerous stories to report around the world. I mean, you think of people who are reporting on Ebola, like Laurie Garrett was reporting on Ebola for him. And you had even uh, the story with Clarence Thomas breaking, right? And Anita Hill. You know, and having the reporter on that. I mean, these are huge stories that are happening while we were working on this book. And these stories broke. 
<laughs> he didn't he didn't stop you know doing his day job for that and wrote a column and you know was working on um as a panel you know on the reporters roundtable for sunday edition the cbs uh sunday show morning show so i mean and then you know even making time for us but he compartmentalized, but he also, we all also knew what he was doing. Like we knew exactly where he was and all of that. We knew how to reach him and also that we could reach him and we could talk to, about, to him about any of these things. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. All right. So listen, we're not going to recount Malcolm X's story. If anybody wants to hear his story, you can, they can read it, his autobiography or read your book or go on Wikipedia. But I do want to talk about some of the points in the story that may differ a little bit from the autobiography, which I feel like is what you guys did so well was bringing context to things and maybe going a couple layers deeper in certain areas. So for instance, with childhood, the circumstances in which he was born into of being in his mother's belly when the clan came around to his house and his dad was away. And the reason behind all of that was that, and as you guys revealed that his parents were big Garveyites, they were followers of Marcus Garvey. They didn't meet up and the dad indoctrinated the mom into believing in this. They were separately followers. And that's that's actually how they met. Can you just talk a little bit about what that would have meant at that time with her West Indian background and being a believer of Marcus Garvey and and the dad being very high up in that organization? Oh, I mean, she coming from Grenada, I mean, Marcus Garvey is also Jamaican. So I'm sure there was that connection too. But also being Black and, and proud of being Black is, you know, what just kept her connected to that organization. And they just resonated with that. Earl Little's rise in the organization. I mean, that was when they, you know, when they came together, they married and they settled, you know, and they they were organizing. Earl, you know, he was smart. He was a hard worker. He wasn't as educated as Louise, 
but he had this pride, you know, and this thing and this organization really helped him to express that. It gave him an outlet for expressing because when he was living in Georgia, you know, his father kept saying, this is not going to work for you because you bring way too much attention to us by, you know, these white folks and they're looking for you and stuff. So he said, you, maybe you need a, maybe you need to go. And so how do you express that side of you? You have to find something, an outlet for that. And he found a positive outlet through, through UNIA and Marcus Garvey and, and he was proud and, and it resonated with them and they built, I mean, they started off in Philadelphia and they just, I mean, the decision to say, we're going to go out to where folks are not organized. We don't know these people. <laughs> you know, they were like they were missionaries, kind of, they were like Garveyite like, missionaries almost. Yeah, they were like very intrepid. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like, we don't know these people, but we're going to do this. And it's great that, you know, that they were able to, to make that work, you know. Mm-hmm. And look, marriages, relationships, as you know, they, they have their ups and downs. But the mission, the overall mission of how to work together on this, they were definitely in step with. Mm-hmm. They were in lockstep with that. They were in agreement with that, even in the way that they raised their children, you know, where, you know, we show you how Louise is passing these these ideas and philosophies and, and this this support system onto her children of being proud and brave and not accepting, you know, these insults from white people and their white classmates. And she's, imbu- you know, she's bringing that into while going with their homework and Earl is organizing this household, you know, as their children, and it's a brood, you know, as it increases, he's organizing, giving everybody chores, making sure everybody gets up and all the chores are taken care of while still going out to look for day work as well as organize for the organization. So, and I would also say this is the way of life, but this was also different in that not everybody was choosing to follow Marcus Garvey, although he did have, you know, yes, a lot of people did join, but there were also a lot of people who didn't. I mean, I look at, I think about how they were just in lockstep with the, the larger picture for them was building that community, which was so important. What would you say from your research that Malcolm's favorite activity was as a child, as a young child? He did like to see movies, except he didn't like to see the movies where, you know, we were just like gone with the wind when the bad images of us. But he was into, you know, he was into the small sports and stuff like that. He was very active, but he was social. He was more Mm -hmm. very, he was very, very social. And we hear that just like, that's part of one of the reasons why we talk about how Earl kind of gravitates to Malcolm's, you know, his his whole thing with language, right? And he's taking him to to these meetings, and and Malcolm gets to see his father. And he's know, the only one that Earl would take to these these meetings, right? Earl took only Malcolm. He didn't take Wilfred or the or the other brothers, but Malcolm was very social. And then his dad died of these mysterious circumstances. In Malcolm's autobiography, he said it was the result of the Klan. But you guys did deeper research. What did you find? It was a street car accident. He had forgotten something, and, was, and he ended up getting his coat. And he's, when he was running back to the street car, he slipped and fell on the tracks, and the street car was coming, and it, and it ran over him. The details that we're getting from this is the firsthand details of Wilfred, who was at home with his mother, when the policemen come to say that their father's in the hospital, and they're trying to 
get her to see him. You know, and Wilfred is listening to how this policeman is speaking to his mother, you know, and he talks about like, no, I think he was being really, you know, really honest. Now, this family had been through so much by this point, you know, we look into this and, and we look at the coroner's report, we look at the also the, the newspaper reports, but we're also talking with people who are in the town there. We did end up finding somebody, you know, that did speak to somebody who was actually related to John Davis Jr., who was on the streetcar and he had seen it. And so that was able to confirm it even through him. So it, was, it wasn't just one person, it was like layered. And you have to get layer upon layer of like, how is this? And you, would, you constantly have to ask these questions of how did that happen? How is it played out? How do people talk about it? You know, and Wilford just would continually say that, you know, we accepted what the police ended up telling us that it was, it was an accident, except Malcolm did not. And, you know, he went with it. And, and people may ask, why did Malcolm really want to believe that it was the Klan? And I said, because we're talking about this is the Depression and the family had just been pushed off their land. They had bought land. There was an exclusionary clause that said that Black people should not, could not own it. And the white neighbors pushed to have them removed. They evicted them and then burned the house down. So there is that tension already in the air. And then there were people who, who were whispering about it and say, hey, you know, it was a Black Legion that didn't. And people were trying to say that they were going to take credit for it with no proof. But what's even more devastating about this, because a lot of people say, oh, okay, Malcolm believes that. But then you look at the insurance companies. You know, Earl had these insurance policies, and one paid, and, and the larger one did not pay. And, and they said that they weren't going to pay because they believed that Earl Little committed suicide. And there was no proof of that. Somebody else had said that they had bur- that he had burned his own house down. So I mean, there is tension in that community, and it's there. And so we see today how this kind of plays out too, right? Like there are people mm-hmm. who, they'll follow these kind of light. It sounds like it could be true, and then they go down these rabbit holes. And this is a similar type of thing. And it's hard for people. I mean, Malcolm at the time of Earl's death, he's six, you know, whereas you know Wilfred was twelve, and so. Again, it's like with a child, I mean, he's still a child and, and he doesn't fully understand everything. But if he's feeling a certain way emotionally, I mean, it's, it's, it's stuck with him. And the rest of the family, they did, they did not agree with, with what Malcolm had said. And Wilfred would say this throughout the interviews. Yeah, Malcolm believed that, but no, we, we don't believe that. And so the family relocated. There was a lot of financial pressure on the mom who ended up being admitted to a mental institution. And at that time, it's hard because Malcolm also, the father is gone. And and by the time she's admitted, you know, this is in 1939. Still, it's just dire times for the family to try to make ends meet. You know, Wilfred had done different things. He'd gone out to Boston and sent money back and Malcolm was taking that Stealing money and as was Filbert and people focus on that. But I'm also saying, but also what's happening is where she's trying to get a widow's pension, the judge is trying to get her to sign over the property she's on now. So we can be upset about Malcolm, but what about the government that's doing this? That's supposed to be giving her the money that she's earned as a widow. And these are her benefits. They're like, well, you know, if you sign over your property, and I don't think everybody, every widow in this town is having to deal with that. 
we're not hearing that story and we're not looking right. at that. But it's like, this is why you have to look at the world Malcolm's born into. These things are happening. And this is impacting Malcolm too. You guys also noted that Malcolm was, was always very honest. When he would get caught doing stuff, he would admit to it. He would cop to it. Yeah, he, he didn't lie. Like even his mother had said, like, he's not a liar. She said, Filbert is another story. But she said, Malcolm is not a liar. And Wilfred said he wasn't a liar. He said, you know, he said, I bust him all the time. And, and he said he would cop to it. But he wouldn't tell you. <laughs> he wouldn't just come up and tell you. <laughs> you know, he just, if you bust him, he'll, he'll let you know. What were the circumstances surrounding this cop that put the gun to his head when he was 14 years old? Well, I mean, he was with John Davis Jr. And Malcolm, you know, he's in his teens. And this is before he sent off, he sent off to Mason, actually. So it's more like 13, 14, right? 12, 13. Mm-hmm. But still, it's these teen years. And Malcolm, you know, one thing that John Davis would talk about, like he liked attention. And he would do these kind of risky things and draw attention to himself. And this thing with a cop, you know, they were got in trouble for supposedly messing around with this white woman. It wasn't him. But the cop was drawn to him because his description was tall. He had red hair. He was hair. tall, yeah. <laughs> he had red hair. He was black. <laughs> John Davis was tall. And John Davis was four years older than Malcolm. So <laughs> that's, that's the other thing. And, and that, but they looked older because they were tall and, and they were black. And so this officer, you know, he was drawn, his attention was drawn to Malcolm. And he put a gun to Malcolm's head. And Malcolm dared him to pull the trigger. Pull the trigger, Whitey, you know, and, you know, John Davis is like, I was scared. <laughs> you know, I was so scared. He's like, he couldn't believe that Malcolm was doing this. I mean, I would look at it as Malcolm does have this need for attention. And I don't know if it's that's necessarily the proper way of saying, but he's, he likes attention. And in that age, I mean, and I think this is what we have to look at development and how we develop in our ages. I mean, Malcolm is in his, is in his teen years. And people look at, like, to me, when we talk about Malcolm as a criminal, he's always presented to us as, as if he was full grown, like 25 years old. But right. when you really look at it, he was 20 years old before he, when he goes to jail. So I think because, you know, happening. Spike Lee's movie portrays, Mal- you know, Denzel Washington, he's clearly in his 20s, maybe 30s when he's doing all this crime and stuff. But yeah, you're right. He was a teenager. He was a teenager. But I would also argue from the autobiography people would teach that before the movie. I mean, I felt that way when I was in college, when they were teaching the autobiography. So, I mean, yeah, I know a lot of people's memory might be about Denzel portraying this, but what I'm saying is that the information has been presented and it could be even that you would say Malcolm would have, you know, wanted people to think that he he had done all these horrible things at older, he was older, but he wasn't. Hmm. He did these things and he was in his teen years. And so here's the clarification that comes up. And then when you look at it that way, a person committing these crimes in, in this, when he's in Harlem, yes, he's pimping women and steering, well, not pimping, but steering them to jobs and stuff. But what is everybody else doing? What is the environment of that time that he's doing this in? And this is in the early 40s. So he's he's a teenager. He's doing these things. And he's surviving. He's trying to make a way. But it's also, I'd say that he's still developing too. He's still learning. You know, he's learning from all of this stuff. So by the time he gets to jail, it's different. He's not 25. He's 20. 
He's just mm. turned, you know, 2021. 20, He's going on 21, rather, you know, mm. when he gets into jail. It's, it's a totally different mindset. It's really to looking at the humanity of him and developing. That's what I'm trying to say here. You all also realized that the Shorty character was really a composite of several yeah. people that he would spend time with. Yeah, it was one of Ella's husbands, Malcolm's older brother, and Shorty, Malcolm Jarvis. And the person that who was really called Shorty, Malcolm Jarvis, he wasn't short. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was tall. <laughs> <laughs> he was called Shorty. And then we talked about it in the book because of his car. He had a car and he also had his thing on the side of the car that you could stand on. They call that the short and this slang. <laughs> and they call him Shorty for that, you know, but it's not because he was short. When he was in jail, obviously he'd become this avid reader. He read the dictionary, he joined the debate teams, etc. He used Dale Carnegie's book to get parole, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was at the suggestion of his brother, Wilfred. You know, in fact, Wilfred suggested it to him and Malcolm Jarvis. Malcolm Jarvis uses it and he gets parole. Malcolm says, I'm going to tell these people what I think about them. And he ends up getting another year. (laughs) But then Malcolm does study that and How to Win Friends. and Yeah. But no. You know, after Malcolm's father dies, Malcolm has his void and he's kind of has his, he's still also searching to fill that void of that father figure. And, you know, and Wilfred, you know, as the older brother and very good friend, I mean, he, he kind of steps in, but he's still his older brother. And then when you also look at Malcolm's attraction to the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad, who embraces him after he's coming out of jail and not make him feel like, oh, you went to jail, you're a terrible person. But just saying, no, man, this is all part of your experiences and this is going to help us grow our organization. And Malcolm, you know, he feels he feels that he's found this new father figure. So he was still trying to kind of fill that in, but also develop other parts of his brain. I mean, he meets Bembry in jail who tells him, yeah, okay, you're using a lot of your physical energy, but maybe you want to move into your mental energy. And Malcolm, who is smart, says, yeah, I don't. When I get out, I mean, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this stuff. So he starts reading and he's a smart guy. And this is the thing. Consistently, everybody, even people who didn't like him, he was smart and he knew how to talk to people. He he really knew how to talk to people. He knew how to listen to people. He knew how to really make you feel good about yourself. The other thing that you guys talked about was Wilfred introduced Malcolm to the Nation of Islam. But then you also... You showed a little vignette of Wilford's experiences at the furniture store and his sort of Garveyite attitude that impressed all of his all of his coworkers. When Malcolm gets released from prison, he he goes and works at that furniture store. Does he become a sort of protege of Wilfred, or is Wilfred a protege of Malcolm? Or why wasn't Wilfred one of the top? ministers in the nation of Islam. Why do, why do you suppose Malcolm kind of rose to that position over his brother who, who seemed person- to embody the same principles? Yeah. I mean, they had different personalities too. I mean, Wilfred, he was such a statesman. He was so dignified and he looked like Malcolm too. I mean, when you, when we, when I, I met him a couple of times and he was just, and he sounded like Malcolm, <laughs> you know, but like, is he a, tall? 
he's tall. <laughs> he's tall. He sounded like Malcolm, but like in a really kind of, if you imagine just talking like you and I are talking, not mm-hmm. speaking in a, you know, in front of a room of a hundred people, but just talking. Wilford is a family man. He, he was about his community. He was a leader and he, he related with, you know, in, in his circles, that wasn't, his interest wasn't to grow like Malcolm was, but he knew that, that Malcolm had that. And he encouraged Malcolm. He said, look, I mean, you, he encouraged Elijah Muhammad to reach out to Malcolm. He said, Malcolm's our brother in jail. He's, he's really special. I mean, he would really, you know, benefit not only from you reaching out to him and talking to him, but like helping this organization. I mean, you, can, you already see how, what we're doing. He had brought in his other siblings, you know, and the sisters didn't really take to it. And, and that, you know, and there are reasons for that. And, but the brothers, you know, they kind of found something in there for them. And Malcolm really grew with it. He ran with it. Malcolm had bigger ideas. Wilfred wasn't, you know, they're just people who just don't think on that level. But Malcolm always thought large. Malcolm thought larger than Elijah Muhammad, which was part of the friction between him and Elijah Muhammad. He was thinking that this nation of Islam could be so much larger and can be so impactful in the community and leading this community into forward into the future with dealing with white supremacy, but also building up our communities and stuff like He saw that. And, you know, Elijah Muhammad's like, you know, we don't want to mix it up with anybody. That was the tension, you know, between the two of them. And, and Malcolm saw it and he, you see it when Malcolm comes out and he starts and he's so excited and, and he's going after, you know, his thing is grow this group of organization as quickly as possible. And then he's saying, grow it with people who who have ideas. So he's going after educated people, right? And other people who are already in there, they're not as educated. They feel threatened or they don't like this and it's causing all this tension. And Elijah Mama ends up sitting him down. Like, you have to calm down. You know, and Malcolm's like, this needs to grow faster. You know, because he's just thinking larger than everybody else was thinking. And that's just who Malcolm is. And it wasn't jealousy between Wilfred and Malcolm on that. He's like, look, that's that's what Malcolm wants to do. This is... You know, this is what I want to do. And like, and they're different personality types. Wilfred did not join the Nation of Islam for religious reasons. He joined it for really community reasons and the Garveyite principles that it, it carried on. And we show that Garveyism is, you know, in their, you know, organization and strategies of how they laid out their plans. And Wilfred was attracted and resonates with him. And he wants to build up where he, where, where he is. He wants to build up that community. And he's thankful to find that group to do that. And he he grows with that and he's happy with that. But Malcolm, he goes all in because he has all the, it's just a different personality, but he's also, he's thinking all this stuff that he had read and he wanted to see for the community. And he just thought larger than everybody else did. And some people can feel threatened by that. Or some people can go with it. How do you suppose Malcolm reconciled with some of the more cultish aspects of the nation of Islam, the spaceships and the mythical origin and these kinds of things? I mean, I think there were times when he did believe in it, but I also think that he stopped teaching that part a lot. He left that to other people and he wanted to focus more on building the nation, make sure the FOI was, you know, doing what they needed to do as very training the men and making sure people were being respectful and, you know, I mean, I think that he grew away from that pretty quickly and he stopped teaching a lot of that. He preached it in some of his stuff, but in his later speeches, you'll see that he doesn't really preach that. He would let other ministers talk, teach that. This led to this infamous meeting with the KKK, which 
you described it in detail in your book, but it hasn't really been talked about very much outside of the dead are rising or has it? Well, people knew about it and Malcolm talked about it, but he didn't want to talk too much about it because it angered him. This really angered him. From what we found, I mean, what, you know, and dad getting talking with Jeremiah Chavez is he really learned that, look, Malcolm doesn't like the KKK. He doesn't want to have any kind of alliance with them at all. That's his position. And the nation, they don't want to mix up with anybody. So Elijah Muhammad can sees, well, maybe we can work something out because the KKK in the South, they're in everything. They're the police, they're, they're the realtors, they're the doctors, they're, they're everything. So maybe they can help us in building our nation and our businesses down there, or they can leave us alone as we conduct our business. And he's saying, see what we can get out of that. Malcolm, on the other hand, he was like, he wanted to have a showdown like they had in the newspapers. And, you know, you had the, the letter writing campaign with Elijah Muhammad. I forgot who it was now who wrote into the Philadelphia Inquirer and was basically saying the nation of Islam calling them the N word. And they're the only thing that, you know, black men wants to be with the women and this is cannot happen. And they had this whole argument literally in, in the newspaper and Malcolm wanted to have kind of a showdown like that face to face. And Elijah Muhammad's like, no, let's see what they want. And this is what we want. Let's see what, where, if we can make something work. And Jeremiah Shabazz, he's a minister of the Atlanta Temple and, and a follower of Elijah Muhammad. So he's more like Elijah, whatever Mah- Elijah Muhammad says, you know, we do. And Elijah Muhammad is the leader of the Nation of Islam. So they definitely have to follow the orders. But, you know, Malcolm starts to see that this can be problematic for him because there's no way that he can, you know, in his be right about the Klan, working, doing anything with the Klan hiring them as lawyers or anything. You don't want any of that. And that Elijah Muhammad can do that, that's a problem for him. Well, he also has that personal conflict of one of his earliest experiences, even before he was born, was involving the Klan. And so they've been a part of his life in a detrimental way for as long as he can remember. That would definitely be the background of it. I mean, that's the foundation of it. Showing up on on the doorstep while he's still in utero and rising up and lancing in the Black Legion to the feelings of their, you know, make him feel about his father's death. I mean, and, and just constantly seeing them in the news and what they're doing and the fear that they're instilling, instilling in the, in people who are joining the nation, who are running away from the South. You know, this is, this is a terrorist group. Do you think that's when his loyalty started to weaken? With the Nation of Islam at that point, because I know the the with child Elijah out of wedlock thing, yeah, with 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 Mr. Muhammad, yes, with Elijah Muhammad, yes, it's a serious rift. I mean, it's it's a serious tear, right? In the relationship. Meantime, he's becoming more popular than Mr. Muhammad. You you mentioned that he is a master of TV, media, and the soundbite. How do you think he developed that? He's a talker, right? <laughs> and I think he studied it. And he he looked at, I mean, he Malcolm, you know, he would look at how things worked. He wanted to know how things worked and then how to use it. And that was one of the things that was brilliant about them. He was great at, he was a great student. You know, even though he dropped out, he was a great student. He knew how to study something and to the point of to see its flaws, see his, you know, positives, and then how to make it work. 
it was just seeing example after example of that, you know, and if the language, I mean, if you think about how he worked with language now, <laughs> he would exaggerate and say he, he wasn't a good student and he didn't know how to write. He always knew how to write. His mother, you know, really instilled grammar in him when he was a child and it stuck. And, you know, with all of them, with all the siblings and all the siblings had were able to, you know, they were educated in their, you know, as far as they had gone and then were able to communicate well. But Malcolm, he, he was a great student of analyzing these types of things. I mean, if you think about even how he comes up with the idea of, I mean, the way he's critiquing American society, nobody else was critiquing it like that. And people who critique it like that since were, impact, were influenced by him. But I'm not saying he wasn't influenced by others. I mean, clearly, you know, he, there are people who came before him that he studied. But how he was critiquing, the way he was critiquing, how he was reaching people, that's what he was a master at and getting people to understand. And whether you were a college educator, had a PhD, I mean, if you see how he even talks to Bayard Rustin, you know, yeah, the people, you know, quibble over who won the debates that he had with Bayard Rustin, but Bayard Rustin had respect for Malcolm, you know, as a debater. And then you have people who, who said, I don't believe anything about the nation of Islam, like in the Hartford chapter. You have people who were educated, who I don't want to be Muslim, but I like the community thing. I like the entrepreneurial stuff that Malcolm was was stressing. He showed them how to do it. So he had he had a way of reaching people where they were. One of his main mantras was self-defense, right? Like we, we're going to abide by the laws. We're going to do everything correctly and be self-sufficient, but we're also not going to tolerate any kind of violence, violence against, against our community. Us. Right. And then this Ronald Stokes affair happens, which further weakens his loyalty to the to the organization, the Nation of Islam. Can you talk a little bit about what that would have meant for him? Yeah, I mean, because what's happens at this point, he re- I mean, Ronald Stokes is killed by policemen who basically harassing the Nation of Islam in California and L.A. Temple. And they run up into the temple and they shoot people and, and Ronald Stokes dies. And Ronald Stokes is like a exemplary member of the nation of Islam in California. And Mal- he and Malcolm were friends. They had a lot of respect for each other. So when he dies, this is somebody Malcolm knew he was close to, but he was like, we have to be able to hold these people accountable. We have to be able to fight back on this. And Elijah Muhammad was like, no, you can't. He wouldn't allow that to happen. And it was huge. And, and, it was another realization for Malcolm because it's like, if we can't defend ourselves in these situations where we're bamped on or when we're attacked, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, it's, it was like, what are we doing for him? And that really tore at him. I mean, he really wanted, you know, and he had them find out who the police were and, 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 and the FOI out there, they were ready. They were ready to go after the cops. But Elijah Muhammad said you couldn't do it because if you think about it, if they went after the cops, the cops would come so down so hard on the nation building, they wouldn't be able to do anything. But on the other hand, this is constantly the case that we, we are constantly experiencing throughout history, right? Even today. But this was that Elijah Muhammad would not give the state the go-ahead to do this. I mean, that bothered him. I mean, it, it was kind of like the last straw. There are other things that were leading up to that, too, because we are we haven't really touched on that while Malcolm is becoming more popular, while he's mastering the television, how to use the sound bite, he's getting all this, 
And basically, when people say the nation is on, they're thinking more of Malcolm and not Elijah Muhammad. And people in the, in the nation are becoming jealous against Malcolm, especially people who are members of Elijah Muhammad's family. And they're feeling that Malcolm may want to try and take over the nation and step into their hierarchy. And that becomes problematic because also Elijah Muhammad's getting older, his health is frail. And so there's that jealousy in there. And so you already have that come, working from within the nation of Islam. And Malcolm's feeling that too. So it's a number of things that are splitting because also while that's happening, because there are people who are now whispering to Elijah Muhammad, you know, about Malcolm's, you know, he's not who you think he is. <laughs> They're whispering to him. But also how much of this is, is also infiltrated by the FBI who has already, we already have a document that they were surveilling them. They were surveilling Elijah Muhammad, all of his households. They were following Malcolm. You know, during this time when he's organizing the Hartford Mosque, they're they're following him. Whenever he holds a meeting, they're walking up to people who go to the meetings and asking what the what was being said in the meetings. This is all going on at the same time, and it's creating this environment of paranoia and distrust. Who you don't know who to trust, while he's still building up a nation. And so there are a lot of things happening. People are, you know, the energies are, are being scrambled and and. It's also how the, you know, the FBI is, to me, successful in weakening the nation of Islam in which they can, you know, turn people against each other and end up assassinating. So he ended up becoming sort of deprogrammed. He deprogrammed himself. What were the circumstances surrounding that? I mean, he just, what he realized is what he was preaching and what Elijah Muhammad was preaching and what was being practiced. And we see constant examples of that. I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing with the Ronald Stokes. I mean, it was very upsetting to him. And then he gets in trouble because he says, you know, it's plane falls out of the sky that's going to France. And it's not funny because all these people died. But he says, oh, my Allah's answering my prayers. And, you know, and all these people died. But he's saying, well, that was an answer for Ronald Stokes's, you know, murder by the cops. I mean, and Elijah Muhammad ends up saying, you can't talk like that. So he's finding like his movements are being restricted. He's seeing all of this happen at the same time. And he's a smart, as smart as he is, he sees this. And then it's a question, well, what do you do with it? Right. You know, as well as move forward. And how do you focus on that? That becomes the dilemma that he has to work through. Well, he also has this major financial dilemma. He's got his big family. He's got no, he's living in the nation's house. They're trying to evict him. He's making money, I guess, off of speeches at this point. This is the only, his only source of income. Well, really the nation's paying him. I mean, mm -hmm. pretty much everything goes to the nation. The nation is paying him. And then he decides to go to Africa. How does he finance this trip to Africa? Well, he goes at the invitation of some dignitaries out in Africa. Not in Africa, but because he makes his hajj and he has connections that he's made and they help him out with that. And people are supporting him through that. And it's kind of talked about in the book. <laughs> I'll let people go back and read that. But the point thing is that he, it goes to show, this is after he split. Now he goes to Africa and, or, for Elijah Muhammad, by the way, to help Elijah Muhammad organize his hajj and, and his trips earlier in 59. And that's done at the expense of the Nation of Islam. But this, he has gained support of people who help him and say they want Mal 
even though these female ones is splitting from the nation of Islam, they want to help him. So they help help him finance that, his going for his Hajj. And then he's able to continue with his other visits because he wants to see what's going on in the world. So he goes to all these different countries in Africa and the Middle East and in Europe. Did he get poisoned in Africa? It was debatable whether it was he was poisoned or he had just gotten sick, you know, from food poisoning, like bad food. There were a lot of things happening at the time because there was something, there was an incident in Ethiopia and there was also an incident in France. Okay. What happened in Ethiopia? He was at a restaurant and he had, he was eating and he had gotten sick. But the other thing was that he had seen somebody at this restaurant that he had recognized from the United States and he thought that they were following him. He had believed that mm. they were following him. So he did get sick. And then I think, so this poison, you know, the food poisoning thing is, like even he kind of writes about it in his diaries that it was food poisoning. But yeah, I know a lot of people say that it was, that he was definitely poisoned. But I'm not sure whether it was actual food poisoning or if it was actual poisoning. You guys didn't find a chef at the restaurant to interview and, and, and talk about that night. We didn't find that. <laughs> so we didn't nail it. <laughs> it's interesting. You guys did talk about the the Sunni Muslim who challenged Malcolm's translation of the Quran. And yes. was it? that was a little surprising for me, to be honest, because I felt, you know, as such an intellectual, how could he have missed that? How could he have not, how could he have not known about the various translations of the Quran? Or, or was it just cognitive dissonance or something like that? Because well, like you said, he had been all over the world at that point. No, that actually, he was still a minister at, at the Harlem Mosque. So he hadn't done that trip in 59 had, at that point? He had done the trip in 59, but his real exposure to this is through whatever they're teaching him. So there was exposure. There was, but was he really, you know, what he was studying, you know, and, and what he was exposing himself to and what the nation of Islam was teaching was not true Islam. And they knew that, you know, Malcolm knew that, but it's, it's when you have somebody, he, he says, let this man speak. Let him explain to us, you know, what what he's saying, because he didn't know he didn't know Arabic and he was he was interpreting something from the Quran that was written in English. And the man says, that's not what that means. And that's when he has to kind of go through this whole thing. And he's still a minister at that point. So, sure, he's going to these other. But is he really studying? And that was my question. He's studying what he's what he's been given in the nation of Islam. He's not studying all of the books you know, that are out there and doing all of this work. He wasn't doing all of that at the same time. The last couple of weeks of his life, he didn't know. Well, actually, there was hints that his mother was psychic and that he also knew that his time was nearing the end. And his house was firebombed at two something in the morning. They all made it out. But then you guys kind of went into this great detail about what happened after the firebombing. And what that was like. Did you actually talk to people who were around during that? Well, yeah. I mean, we spoke with people who were in the nation, like Captain Joseph. <laughs> and we spoke to people who were following him, like James Shabazz. And yeah, I mean, there were the people who were around and were telling us what was going on. Yeah. But talk a little bit about that. that. Kind of detail. Right. Because again, um, he had no money. So, and it's, he has a family. No, of- because at this point, basically, it's like people... The, and people around him are realizing he has no money and that he 
that he needs help. And they're giving him places to stay because at that time, I mean, people were, you know, more supportive as far as like making sure people had at least a place to stay like that. Um, and he fortunately had people who were, who were around who were doing that. I mean, even think about the time, well, let's just talk the firebombing. They've been evicted from the nation. So basically that's their cut. He's split from the nation. The house is now evicted. He's cut. So now it's like they basically are at the mercy of, and support of friends. You know, and like the, Beyonce Davis and Ruby Dees and the Harry Belafontes. You know, they, they definitely were kind of around, you know, and helping. And then a week later, he is assassinated. And there was, I didn't realize this when I read the book, I found out there was a rehearsal for the assassination before the assassination. Yeah, the dry run, as we call it. Yeah, yeah. the dry run. And the undercover cop I mean, is and the one that look, kind of... And that comes from... Where do we get that information from? You get it from Gene Roberts, who's, who's working for the Bossy's Bureau of Special Services and Investigations, and which is a special section of the New York Police Department. He is not a trained police officer. He was in the military with, you know, different intelligence clearances, but he's never gone into the police academy. He is brought off, taken basically after he hits the street, after he leaves the military, they hire him to be uh, an informant. And to infiltrate Malcolm's group. And he did. You know, and this thing stays with him. What happened? Because, I mean, honestly, I mean, when you see somebody's chest opened up, I don't know how you get that out of your mind. I mean, I think that kind of just stays with you, no matter whether you like the guy or didn't like the guy. And at the time, he wasn't a huge fan of Malcolm's. But he did see his humanity. Mm. And his training kicked in. You know, he was an army medic. And his training kicked in. And... When Malcolm's assassin, he's the one that is giving, you know, Malcolm CPR, you know, and he tries to resuscitate him. And, you know, it's Malcolm's, you know, it's, it's just gone. Well, I don't want to go into the details because I want people to read the book, but you guys do kind of plot the entire assassination and you have some pretty strong conclusions about all that. Because I know that's another, you know, mysterious aspect of Malcolm's life. Who exactly was the assassin? Was it the government? Was this the mosque or, you know, what, what, what actually happened? So much of, you know, dad's work in that, I mean, those last chapters in particular is like some of his best work as far as finding people and that letting story kind of get away from it as much as he could was and finding out what, what really happened. And he was determined, you know, he was, he was constantly just trying to find out. I mean, this thing, Years later, I mean, he, it's still, you know, people are still connected to this. I mean, it's, it's like it's branched out. And what I mean by branch, like way that people had moved around. But the work that goes into this is just incredible. And the details and it's just showing that you keep asking the question. You don't let it go. And this is how these stories can go on for so long. It's like you can say you have a great book when you talk about Malcolm's earlier life. But then it's like, but how can you write a book and not cover as much as you can about the assassination? And my father was really determined to get everything he could find about that. And I still think that there's stuff out there. Yes, we find out who the the killers are and they're not going to because most of them have passed on and they're not going to have served a day in you know, their lives for, for this murder. But 
like I said earlier on, it's like you can't just solely point your fingers at the nation of Islam because they were infiltrated. And there's plenty of evidence to show you that Hoover wanted Malcolm taken care of in his own writing. Mm. He wrote that. So today that people still question whether or not the FBI was involved is we, we lay it out how they are. And other people have worked on showing you how, how the FBI did this and why they would do this and why that work continued. And if they were capable of doing it back then, do we honestly think that they have stopped? Obviously, Malcolm's life got cut. He was 39 years old, had a lot more to do, a lot more to say. Where he was taking us as far as the human rights issue and how we were seeing ourselves on a human on the human rights issue level. I mean, it was was revolutionary for that time. But the way he was critiquing what America's doing, even when you look at I mean, I remember just looking at the ballot and the ballot of the bullet speech, for example. You read that today and you're like, wow, this totally explains the setup of these two parties, right? And how mm-hmm. Which party do you choose? They're both having major, huge issues, and they're not for unless we really work to make them part of our, you know, look at our issues. But where do we fit in them as Black people? I mean, he he really lays it out for you to to see that and that kind of critique. And he was so clear on that, you know. And there was even a comment, you know, I've been you know thinking about that he said where he talks about how racism in the United States and call it white supremacy, it succeeds because of greed and ignorance. And in order to overcome it, he says, if white people understood our real, black people's real contribution to civilization and sciences, they wouldn't feel the way that they feel about us. They really saw what we were doing and they would feel not as superior to us. You know, he said, be at least negated. And he's saying black people, if they really understood and saw what our contributions were, that we would see ourselves different. We would see ourselves as human beings and act like human beings among human beings. But he says, but the only way to overcome this is through education. He says, you don't even get that through going to university degrees because the American education system is set up to keep us dumb. Mm. He didn't say in those words, but he says that it's set up. You know, I hear, you know, these conversations and you're like, and you really kind of start to think about, well, where are people getting this information if they're not looking outside of, you know, the school syllabus, the class syllabi that they're, whether they're in high school or college, we have to really go out and and educate ourselves. And sometimes educating ourselves means simply traveling or talking to people from other places and really trying to understand their histories, but also understanding that these people may not know their own histories because they've been denied. But we have to understand Malcolm critiqued that in 1965. He said that in 1965 and we, and it still holds true. And speaking of people who've, whose life ended early in March 19, 2018, your father unexpectedly passed. You obviously were devastated, but then you were kind of thrust to the forefront of this project. How, how did that feel for you, becoming the sort of primary person involved in this project? Did you feel ready? I was ready, but I was upset. This was my father's life's work. You know, and I just feel that he should be here to have this conversation with you, to receive the National Book Award. You know, all this stuff is bittersweet for me. But he also would say, you know, look, you know this stuff. You understand it. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I, I understand. And, I'm, you know, and I, I knew from day one that this book was going to be really important. And as the time drew closer to the time that it becomes published and then see 
what's happening, current events. I was like, man, this book is right on time. And, and that's one thing Dallas, I was like, there were times when I said, can't we get this book out sooner? You know, he's like, whenever this book comes out, it'll be the time for it to come out. And he's right. But it is sad to me that he is not here. I mean, I'm proud to have been able to finish this book and make sure it is published and people are reading it like yourself and, and throughout the world and that people are seeing Malcolm in a more nuance in his way and, and, and seeing his humanity and seeing the world that, you know, he was born into, what America really is all over here and abroad. And at a time when all the veils are, start, are coming down about, you know, all of the hypocrisies. I mean, I can tell you, before January 6th, people were uncomfortable saying white supremacy. But after January 6th, everybody's saying white supremacy. But Malcolm was saying that back in the 1960s, as was Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders. They were talking about that then. And what would happen? The media would isolate these guys and then make them the perpetrators and say that you're the racist, you're the troublemaker, you're creating this, not the system. It is you because you're speaking out against the system. And we see this happening every single day, whether it's Colin Kaepernick taking a knee knee during this national anthem. I mean, come on. This country was said that we should be able to protest. I mean, a silent protest like that? Sure, you're going to be accountable. But what is taking a knee? He's still showing respect. But because Mm -hmm. it's him and his image of doing that, that riles people up. Why does that rile that up? It's challenging white supremacy. You all even talked about how Rosa Parks was a Malcolm X fan, which yeah. I think surprises a lot of people as well. Yeah, I mean, that was great news to find out, actually, because it just goes to show you, because you can say you don't have to choose between Malcolm and Martin because we have them, right? Mm-hmm. Now you hear the woman say, you know, who was considered the mother of the civil rights women say, I was more Malcolm than Martin. Mm. <laughs> you know? And I say again, it's like he critiqued what was going on. He critiqued the movement, but he also provided ways for people to deal with these situations. Educate yourself. Be pride. Embrace yourself. Don't accept when people tell you there's something wrong with the shape of your nose and your lips and the texture of your hair. Don't accept that. Hmm. Embrace yourself. He actually, and he was saying, and if you embrace yourself, then you're 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 changing the perspective. You know, and it's like you hear that actually being uttered in the new wave, right? In this new wave mentality, um, the, you know, the enlightenment, when they talk about changing your perspective, transforming your perspective. It's what Malcolm was talking about. Embrace yourself. Don't accept what people are telling you about yourself. Mm. Three more quick questions. I know the last, when you're publishing a book, the title is usually one of the last things you decide upon. Was your dad a part of the deep? Was that his title? The Dead Are Rising? That was his title. Yeah. The Dead Are Rising was dad's title. It comes from the Nation of Islam. When they refer to people outside of the nation, they call them the dead. And Malcolm, you know, this is their language. So Malcolm, when he was in Hartford, writing to Elijah Muhammad about his progress in recruiting new members. And he was saying that we're coming across some obstacles, but we're making headway. So the dead there are rising. And dad just changed the rising to a rising because a rising connotes really more of the action transformation, right? And Mm. so it became a metaphor for the book of looking at Malcolm, of looking at how people around him, even the dead are arising. Malcolm was the dead are arising. But then you can look at today as well, the dead are arising. How do you think Malcolm would think about 
success these days? I think he'd be really critical of people accepting or going for the, what he would say. I mean, he would be like, you've been hoodwinked, you know, accepting what people are calling success, like these material the capitalists. Yeah. The, capitalist the television images, only looking at what the media is showing you as success and accepting that as opposed to real internal growth as being success and real, you know, that you can stand on that can support you and you can, you can rely on during difficult times. You can't rely on that, on this materialism all the time, you know, mm. and you're in your deepest moment, you're dealing with, you know, this question of whether you're going to move forward, you know, or sideways, having a Mercedes Benz in your, in your driveway is not going to help you. You know, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. And by the way, I'm just saying that Malcolm <laughs> would be critical of that. You know, it's right. like thinking, having the inner with wherewithal to move forward. You know, and he would see that we've been kind of caught up with when we when you look at the media and and the media images that are keep they keep shooting at us. And he'd be really critical. However, he'd be moved by the Black Lives Matter. You know, young people and what they're doing. I think it'd be really interesting how they have, you know, the way that they are moving, you know, it's like they have different focuses. Folk, I mean, if you look on local levels, they're focusing on where they are, in, where they are locally, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's the national movement. But if you look at where they are in Louisiana and where they are in, in Georgia, it's different than what you see here in New York because these states run differently. He'd be interested in seeing that, but he would also want them to be, he would want he would probably be able to give them more insight on how to move forward even stronger on that. And I think that we really missed something when Malcolm was taken from us because he was really on the precipice of something. I mean, I think about that moment I, I write about in the in the epilogue where he was in the University of Beirut and speaking with the, those students, you know, these are Iranians, and they're quite have a question and answer session, and he's just listening to them, you know, and and their problems. And, and he said, you know, what you guys need to think about is monetizing your, your resources for yourselves. And they were saying that nobody ever spoken to them about that. And this is in 1964. So I'm like, those types of things we are missing. Like he was, he was, a, he was free enough to think, be in a situation, think about how the world is working and its ties to resources and how to get systems organized and, and disorganized about that. And I think that he he really would be, you know, he would have helped us figure that out. And so you've completed this monumental project. You're obviously still promoting it to some extent. I'm just curious, what's next with you now that you're this big national book award winner (laughs) and investigative journalist? What are you up to next? I'm really just focused on promoting the book. And I really also just kind of getting, keeping dad's name out there. It's important to me because... Not only did dad do this work, I mean, he's worked on so many important stories that we should, you know, we should know about, like how he reported even on the Soweto uprising in 1976. And if you look at what's happening in South Africa now, you'll have a lot of people who will tell you that apartheid didn't happen. Whereas in Soweto uprising series, he's writing about how that system in real time, you know, and it's mm-hmm. almost like we really need to go back and look at that. And so I think it's really important that what's important to me about this book is that it shows what was going on in 20th century America and how we got to where we are. And mm-hmm. it things that happened before that, right? And it's important that we know how we get here. 
And there's so many stories in here that I think can even be even more fleshed out. And I would like to pursue some of those. But more importantly, I think it's, we really need just getting the folks on people to really look at this history and understanding how we, how we got to, how we are here. It didn't just happen. And it's not a surprise. I want to acknowledge you for carrying on your dad's work and for being a great spokesman for that and and just for showing up over these 30 years. That's a long time (laughs) to stay committed to us, to a project while you're doing other things. Yeah, but I learned a lot from my father as a journalist, as an interviewer, as an editor, as a writer. And it's just just so many lessons I learned from him and just about this history. And, and working on this book for me too, was just under learning this history up close. It wasn't just a textbook for me. I mean, really, these people are alive. John Davis is a real person. I mean, Wilfred's a real, real person. I mean, I've met them. Vicki Garvin, Alice Window. I mean, these are people who are really real people. They're living. I've spoken to them. I know the sound of the voice and, and they were living history. And we got we're able to get a lot of their story on the page. And I just, think it's really important that we hear these stories and understand. I know a lot of people like to talk about Malcolm and his, you know, issues with women. And I'm like, but it evolved. He didn't stay in one place on that. And I Mm -hmm. think even part of the book, but what's also important about this book is the appendix, you know, which is something that was in the archives of, uh, of Dr. Evans, Walter Evans. And it was this last Questionnaire Malcolm was working on at the end of his life, given to him by the uh, right. Islamic Center of Geneva, which is very, I mean, Malcolm was saying, was speaking a lot of this stuff, but to actually see, you know, his answers, he's thought out answers to these questions about, for example, why does he still talk about race when he's he's a Sunni Muslim Muslim and, and he's Orthodox and and Islam doesn't see race, only the human race. And doesn't he understand that? And Malcolm said, until my 22 million fellow African, you know, fellow black people and Americans are free, I'm not, you know, I will continue to do this. This is, they're not free yet. And he was even critical of them saying that, yes, this is a great religion. But even when you come to the United States to bring recruits, you only look at white Americans. You don't even look at black Americans. So he's still critical and he still holds having, you know, the freedom of black Americans as his first cause. And he doesn't put himself in front of that. Do you have any thoughts about the fictionalized one night in Miami or the who killed Malcolm X Netflix series? Did you see any of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, who killed Malcolm X was a documentary that wasn't fictionalized. I mean, no, that, that wasn't really the doc. Good. Yeah. Yeah, they did really, you know, they did some really interesting work there. And I think it opened the eyes and look, it it got the, uh, you know, it got the attention of people to, you know, look at this case, murder case. Um, Yeah, the DA, the DA apparently was revisiting whether or not to open the case back up again. Yeah. And look, Norman Butler, look, we show also that Norman Butler and Thomas Johnson weren't in the room and that the people who could identify were not called in or asked those questions like Benjamin Kareem, you know, for example, Gene Roberts wasn't called in at all because they knew that they called him in and people would realize he was a cop. But I thought that they did some really good work on that. And, and one night in Miami, kudos to Regina. You know, she, she really did this because again, like in our book, by putting Malcolm in the context of his family and the world he was born into, you're showing his humanity. Mm-hmm. And in this book, in this movie that she did, 
you know, she's showing the nuance of these four iconic Black men who are so important and in 20th century America, not just Black America, America. And they had that they had a friendship and that they were all breathing this kind of rare air and their position and those conversations they were having are so important. And we, and it was like, we got to like look in on that and what that was like. And then to see humanity of their disagreements and their agreements. And then, and it's kind of like how we have our own friendships, right? It's like, you have friends when you're like, man, I don't agree with this, you know? Yeah. I didn't agree with him when you said that, but you know, you're right. <laughs> you know? And it's like being able to see that is important. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Really did a great job portraying the nuance, nuance yeah. that exists. And yes, I mean it's it's fictional, but it's still images that are important. Yeah, and the spirit was there. I felt absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for thank taking you. time to talk to us, and I hope everybody gets a chance to get the book, "The Dead Are Rising," and I'll put all of it in the show notes, all the information. What's the best way to Keep up with you. Are you on Twitter? I know you're on Instagram, but you're on- <laughs> I'm on Instagram. I will have a website up, thedeadorarising.com, where people can also reach me. But right now, at it's Tamara Payne on Instagram is the best. Okay, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know about you guys, but I'm inspired. And I want to keep bringing on more experts and authors to talk about the fascinating lives of changemakers from modern history and even ancient history. I mean, why not? Because not only do I get to learn a lot, but we get to see their lives in context and glean whatever wisdom we can from their experiences to apply to our own. So thank you very much for going along on the journey with me. And I hope it inspires you to read The Dead Are Arising. And if you've never read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I highly recommend reading that too. It's in my top five dead or alive all-time favorite books. Meanwhile, you can follow Tamara on Instagram at It's Tamara Payne. And the website is thedeadarearising.com. And if you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do for now is to leave a five-star rating. It only takes 10 seconds. All you do is glance down at your screen, click where it says at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple. And if you're not listening to this on the podcast app, look for a button that says listen on Apple Podcasts and you'll see the purple link. Then scroll down past the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and just tap the star on the far right and you've left the rating. It's literally that easy. And I thank you in advance for taking those 10 seconds to do that. It really means a lot. But more importantly, that's what's going to lead Apple to potentially feature this podcast more prominently and you can help to spread these inspirational stories more widely. You can also find the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Tamara at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years now. I'm gearing up for my next book launch, which is based on those daily dose emails. It's called Knowing Where to Look. 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration is coming out in late May and it's officially now available for pre-order everywhere books are sold. You'll see purchase links at lightwatkins.com slash knowing. And uh, thanks again for listening to the podcast, for sharing it with your friends and your followers. I'll see you guys back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and please keep taking those leaps of faith. And I'm sending you lots of peace and love. Have a great day. 
If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.